If you're new with us this morning, we've been in a series called Dared to be the Church. And we are discovering what the early church in the book of Acts uh, did is they formed as a new church and they started to figure out what it meant to step into these audacious things that God was calling them into. We're going to continue in that this morning. I wonder if in your life, if you ever asked this question, what does it take in order for you to be in right standing with God? Or maybe you, you could phrase it another way. What do I have to do in order to be accepted by God? I remember I would think of stuff like this uh, throughout my life. And if you haven't asked those questions, no doubt at some point you will. For me, it came at a young age when I'd be staring up at the ceiling. First, my first thoughts would be like, boy, I wonder what I'm going to play tomorrow. And, uh, will I get ice cream? And that hasn't changed. Oftentimes when I can't sleep, I'm thinking the same thing still today. But then I had this fear of missing out, total FOMO. And, and I was the youngest in my family at the time. And I would feel like, man, I am up here in bed trying to go to sleep and the rest of the family's downstairs. And there's probably some massive party that I'm missing out on. I remember one night, late at night, it was like eight o'clock. I snuck out of my room and walked down peeked in the kitchen to see this party that I'd missed out on every night because I had to go to bed early. And my mom, I think, was like washing the dishes. My brother was doing his homework at the table. And my dad was reading something. I was like, I'm not missing anything. Back up to bed. But I remember laying in bed night after night and starting to think about other things, deeper things. Like, what, what happens to me after I die? What about this eternity? It's time that never ends. It goes on and on and on. And then I started thinking like, what does it take for me to be right with God? What if, what if I didn't say a certain prayer right? Or, or what if there's still something I have to do and this fear rose up in me? And I remember just sitting there going, God, if I'm not saved, save me. And the next night I'd think of it again, uh, what if I didn't do it right? God, if I'm not saved, save me. Night after night after night. But what if the question is not so much, what do I have to do? But what if the question's, what has already been done? So what we're going to look at this morning. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 15. I'm going to start there this morning. Acts chapter 15. If you don't, I will read and you can follow along. It starts in verse 1 saying, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So some context, what's happening here? Last week, Ryan walked us through chapter 14 as the church continued to move out. In fact, we saw that some of the people were excited to hear the message. Others, the Jews in that area, got very angry and took Paul outside the city and tried to stone him to death. He gets back up, walks back to the city, and continues on mission. This is taking place in Syrian Antioch. It was in the northern coast, along the coast, and it had become this hub for the church. It was a growing church. In fact, this is the place that launched Paul out on his missionary journey. And the men that are being talked about here are what we're going to continue to refer to as Judaizers down the road. They're these Jewish Christians that followed the conservative line, and later on they're even referred to as the Pharisee party. They're this Jewish uh, sect that had began to follow Jesus, but are asking these questions. There's maybe something additional that you have to do in order to be saved. Now, also, you're going to notice in this, uh, it continues to say brethren or brothers. 
You'll notice that all throughout this chapter. And when it speaks of that, it, first here it's talking about those that had believed that were Gentiles, that were not Jews. Right? Later on, Paul's going to venture down south. He'll go through Samaria. And he'll again use that term brothers. And it's meaning these half-Jews that were there. And then they get to Jerusalem. And again, he's going to say that same question. Brothers, that same statement. It's this family of God that's expanding, that's encompassing more than just the Jewish people. It's a term used of men and women that had chosen to join into the family of God. It says that they began teaching. This is a different teaching. It's different than the message that Paul had shared with them earlier. They're adding on to this circumcision, which I'm glad that we get to talk about today. I'm sure when you woke up this morning, you thought, I can't wait to go to church and talk about circumcision. I know, I'm right there with you. We'll get to that, but let's continue on first. It says, And Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. And the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some other men should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles concerning this issue. It says that they had great dissension. The literal translation is there was no little dissension or debate. It's as though Luke, in writing this account, has said, you know what, this issue came up of what it meant to be saved and what it took to be saved. And if you would have been in the room, it was no little debate. It's fierce. You ever been in a room where two people started debating on something and it gets a little more heated, a little more heated, and all of a sudden you're like, where's the door? I want to back out of this room. It's getting awkward. I think Paul is getting pretty fired up. Why? Because this is such an important issue. So much so that the believers there, the brethren, decide that Paul and Barnabas should go back to Jerusalem to settle this. Back to Jerusalem where the church had begun where the apostles were, where the elders were as well. And they should hash this out. They should figure out what the answer is to this question. Now, when you see up here, the writer is not directionally challenged. They're going to head south. But the old ancient ways of describing things were not by direction, but by elevation. And so they decide to send them to Jerusalem. This is no small trip. It's about 250 miles in continued elevated terrain by foot. But they decide this is important enough. We've got to go and get this figured out. So they head to Jerusalem with this question, are we still missing something? Do I have to somehow form into some ethnic Jewish identity in order to be saved? And it says the church sent them on their way. It means that the church provided for the provisions for the trip because the church was a united body. It also says in verse 4, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders. They reported all that God had done with them. Now, as they're sent on the way, passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, they described all the conversions, the Gentiles that were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So they're traveling down south, and as they're going, they continue to share with everyone what God has continued to do. And that brings great joy to the church. We see the church is united in the family of God. And as they hear more and more people turning to Christ, it gives them incredible joy. That's not hard for me to imagine because we have another baptism service coming up in October. Every time I walk out of those baptism services, I am so pumped up to hear the stories of people as they continue to share how their life has been transformed by the hope of the gospel. 
how they found true life in Jesus. And as they're sharing those, I'm always bawling like a baby. It's incredible to see the life change that God does, and it fires me up. No doubt, as Paul is sharing these life changes and these stories, the church there as well is fired up. It's no different. In fact, I wonder, as Paul is traveling down south, if he's thinking back to Acts 1.8. It's happening. He said, you will receive power to be witnesses You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, as it continues to broaden out. And now, Paul is coming as the gospel is spreading farther and farther to the ends of the earth. He's traveling through Samaria on his way back to Jerusalem. I wonder if he's reminded what God says will happen, will happen. God is a promise keeper. God does make a way where it seems impossible And when he gets there, the church who loves them receives them and welcomes them in. But it doesn't take long at all for the drama of the debate to explode again. Verse 5. Some of the rest of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Here we are again. Now, he says it's necessary It's not that it would be nice or it would be helpful, but this is essential. It's necessary that you do this in order for salvation. What? Circumcision and following the law of Moses. Now, it's so easy when we read this stuff to look at it through the lens of a 2021 Western American perspective. But what we have to do is take a little time travel back to the first century and put ourselves in a position where we're looking at this through the eyes of the first readers. How would they have processed this? What would have been going through their mind? You know, actually, I can kind of logically start to see the framework that they're trying to work through with this. You think of it. For thousands of years, the Jewish people had operated in a covenant with God. He had met with a man named Abraham and told him that he would bless him and that all the world would be blessed through him. He had chosen a people, the nation of Abraham, as his family grew larger and larger, the nation of Israel, to be his chosen people, to display to the rest of the world God's goodness. And in that, he wanted them to look different. He wanted them to be set apart, to be holy. That's literally what holy means, to be set apart. So he gave them different laws to abide by that would make them look different. In this, there's these cleanliness laws. There's these sacrificial laws. And then the the Jewish people started adding their own laws to make sure they were following those laws. And Jesus would have been born into a Jewish family. Jesus himself would have been circumcised on the eighth day, the same day that they would have, in their custom, given a name. Jesus would have followed all of these laws to a T. He would have lived them perfectly. So they're trying to process what does Jesus mean with these laws and with this sign of circumcision. It's kind of interesting. If I'm in that day, I'm thinking, God, couldn't you have like, given a symbol of a ring? But no, you chose circumcision, right, instead? So he says, circumcision was a sign to show their faith in God and God's covenant with Abraham. And essentially what it meant was a removing of the skin, a removing of the flesh. What's the symbolism within that? It was to remind them that God would do something through them, through their offspring. 
that they could not do in their own flesh. They could not do in their own strength. It was going to take something that only God could do. And so by choosing to participate in this act, it was a reminder of the covenant they had with God and how he would fulfill that covenant that they themselves could not fulfill. And it's a big deal. We can go back and read what was written to them in Genesis chapter 17 and Exodus chapter 12. In fact, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, we see the strong language with this. It says, anyone not circumcised was to be cut off from his people. They're to be regarded as a covenant breaker. This is a big deal. But as anything so often happens, God, who is holy and pure, gives us something pure. And as humanity in our brokenness, we start to distort it and manipulate it. And that's what's starting to take place among the Jewish people with circumcision. They started to think through this as a badge of honor, as a platform of superiority. They're better than everyone else. In fact, it fostered a spirit of exclusivity rather than a zeal for mission, as God had intended it to be. So the question that they're wrestling with now is what does it take to be saved? What does it take to be in God's family? Which is an understandable question. Is it Jesus plus the law of Moses? Is it Jesus plus fulfilling all these laws perfectly? Is it Jesus plus this symbol, this covenant of circumcision? Is it Jesus plus perfection? What does it take for me to be saved? Is it truly what Paul's saying? It's this new math. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So we continue to see what unfolds in verse 6. And the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. The Greek word look into means to stare at, to look intently. They mean business. This isn't just something they're going to look at and make a quick decision. They're going to take some time to really focus in. We start to see this unfold in this. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate, meaning inquiring, debating, questioning, maybe even arguing, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, as Peter's talking, his mind is going back to the experience that he's taken place. You remember back in our series in Acts chapter 10, we were reminded of a story that happened with Peter. He's hungry. He wants something to eat. And God gives him this vision of this sheep sheet coming down, filled with these animals that were deemed unclean. And God tells Peter, kill and eat these animals. Peter's like, oh no, God, I would never do that. I follow the laws. I'm not going to do that. Second time, God says, Peter, kill and eat these animals. And Peter's like, no, God, really, I uh, will keep the laws. It takes three times for God to get through to Peter that he has a new message, that he's doing a new thing. It's not that God was trying to abolish Judaism. This was a messianic Jewish movement. It's that he's starting to invite the whole world into what he's done through these people. 
And so God tells him, you're going to meet with a man, Cornelius. He's not a Jew. And you're going to share the message of the gospel with him. So what's Peter do? The first thing he does, he walks into Cornelius' home and he reminds him, hey, you know, it's not lawful for me, a Jew, to be hanging out with you, a Gentile, right? He's starting to process this and think through this. And as he does, notice what he's understanding. It wasn't Peter's decision to do this. I can picture Peter saying, man, if this were my plan, I would have never done this. I would have never reached out to them. But what did he say? He's saying God is the one that's making the decision. See in verse 7, God made a choice. And then verse 8, it was God who knows the heart. He testified to them as he also did to us. Verse 9, he, meaning God, made no distinction. It's not that he, Peter, is deciding this. He's seeing what God has done. Now in verse 8, when it says that he testified to them, the NIV reads, he showed he accepted them. Or he's showing his approval. How? By giving them the Spirit. When, and then he makes no distinction between us and them, cleansing their heart by faith. Did you hear that? They would say, wait, wait. Cleansing their hearts by faith, not by a ceremonial ritual, not by a cleansing law, by faith? This is a historic moment. This is a historic salvation shift that has taken place, and they're starting to process all that this entails for them. He goes on, and he says in verse 10, now therefore, why do you put God to the test? In other words, why do you doubt God? Why do you provoke God? Why are you trying to listen to what God's plan is and then go and do your own thing? Because you and I never do that, right? We don't listen to God's plan and then be like, eh, I'll do my own. But for them, he's challenging them by placing upon the necks of the disciple a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. You would have understand this, a yoke put on an animal or an oxen as they went around the mill or as they pulled a plow in the field, something heavy that they're pulling. He's saying, why are you putting on them a standard that we could never keep? We couldn't do it. And now you're saying they have to do it? They have to believe in Jesus Christ and fulfill the law perfectly. There's no way we could do it. What's interesting is he flips the standard here. Verse 11, he says, but we believe that you are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. Now, often we say the standard is us, so come follow us. But what he's doing here is he's saying God set the standard with them, with the Gentiles. They're saved through faith. You know what that means for us? As Jews, we too are saved by faith, not by keeping the law. As he's starting to unpack this, it's almost as though you could hear a pin drop in the room as they're listening. Silence. They're processing it. Verse 12, and the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. What does it take for God to accept you? Is it faith in Jesus plus something I do? Kind of reminds me of how I was journeying in this in my own story. Now, when I was younger, I had a lot of ambitions, things I wanted to do, things I wanted to accomplish. Some were important things, some were menial things. 
One of the things that I wanted to do is I walk into the gym in our high school and I see these banners up on the wall. And I thought, when I get in high school, I want to be on a team that actually puts a banner up on that wall. I put the standard on myself. My dad would come to every game and he'd cheer me on. And we did. We got it. We got some banners up on the wall. It was an incredible thing. But I had another standard that I wanted to accomplish, another goal that I wanted. I wanted to go on and play college basketball. And so I went into college. I was going to study pre-med. I was going to play basketball. I was working through relationships. And all of a sudden, stuff started just to come unraveled. I remember the day that we got a new coach. And he came in. He told me, Josh, we don't need you on the team. I got somebody else that will take that position. And I was crushed. I remember going back to my dorm room and sitting on my bed, thinking, I got to call my dad. Now, my dad had never put a weight of pressure on me for this. But in some way, I thought, I'm going to let him down by not playing this. Mostly, I thought, I let myself down, and now I have to share this with him. I remember making that phone call, and I'm a mess. I said, Dad, I'm not on the team. I'm not going to be playing basketball. I remember what my dad said to me. He said, Josh, you could never play another game in your life, and that doesn't change any of the way I feel about you. I love you, and I accept you. You don't have to do that at all. He said, I enjoyed watching you play basketball in high school, but not just because I like, enjoyed watching basketball. It was because you're my son, and I accept you, and I love you. And something clicked in me in the same way with our Heavenly Father. How many of you, how many of us, are continuing to try and gain some kind of approval, some kind of favor, some kind of acceptance from God by what we do? We're trying to be good enough. We're trying to achieve enough. We're trying to not sin enough. We're trying to do whatever it is to gain God's favor and acceptance, a goal and a standard that could never be accomplished when if we could just understand the truth of what Paul and now Peter are describing, it's salvation by grace through faith alone. If you're somebody that circles in your Bible, I'd go back to verse nine, and I'd circle that he cleansed their heart by faith. I'd go back to verse 11, and I would circle saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. This is the good news. You could never be accepted. You could never be good enough on your own to be loved by God. But that's where Jesus comes in. He takes the punishment, the weight of sin that I deserve, and he puts that on his son. And in place of that, he gives us his full love and acceptance. Church, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and nothing else. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That changes everything. That changes everything in my life. I have nothing to earn. I'm fully loved, fully accepted, fully valued by God because what Jesus has done for me I don't have to live with guilt or shame over my past regrets, past sin, or even guilt or shame over the current sin and struggle that I find myself in. Because Jesus has paid for that. 
Everything in the past, everything in the present, everything in the future, he's paid for it all. And because of that, I can actually live to extend grace for others that find themselves in the similar struggle. Because God's changed everything. I don't have to try to control others' opinions of me or try to, in some way, impress God with my spirituality. Because he's given me everything in the confidence and the way that he sees me because he, when he sees me, he sees his son. I'm not trying to live up to someone else's standard. I'm living up to God's standard. And this frees me. This changes everything. Paul, when he was talking to the church more about this and recounting what this truly means, in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 14, said this. I'm going to read it in a paraphrased paraphrase version. Church, get this. Entering into the fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. It's not a matter of being circumcised or keeping a long list of laws. You're already in, insiders, not through some secretive initiation rite, but rather through what Christ has already gone through for you, destroying the power of sin. If it's an initiation ritual you're after, You've already been through it by submitting to baptism, going under the water as a burial of your old life, coming up out of it was a resurrection, God raising you from the dead as he raised Christ. You were stuck in your old sin-dead life. You were incapable of responding to God, and God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All the sins forgiven, slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ on the cross. Circumcision can't save you. Baptism can't save you. Keeping laws can't save you. Being good enough can't save you. The only thing that brings salvation is faith and trust in through what Jesus alone has done. They continue on in verse 13. After they'd stopped speaking, after Paul and Barnabas continue to share stories of how people's lives have been transformed. Verse 13, they'd stop speaking and James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God has first concerned himself about taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. Now James is the half-brother of Jesus. I don't know if any of you have siblings, brothers or sisters in this room, but it's pretty remarkable thinking about James. James is now a church leader in Jerusalem. He's actually put in a position where he's, he's kind of uh, looked up to to help give a decision along with all of their uh, thoughts as they debate it and work through it. And I don't know if any of you that have brothers or sisters have ever sat there and thought, boy, I wonder if my brother is the Messiah, the chosen one, right? We're like, no, I know that they are not, right? But James sees Jesus grow up sees everything he does, and he's convinced this guy is the real deal. It's the Son of God came to rescue and redeem us. So what's he do? He tries to continue to convince this, the Jewish people they're talking with. The first interesting thing is he uses Peter's Hebrew name, his Semitic name, and he recounts what he said. And it's a similar expression that's regularly applied and referring to with Israel in verse 14. But this time he replies and refers to it as the Gentiles, taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Now look where he goes to for his final decision. We can learn a lot from this church as we wrestle through issues and cultural things. What, what should we do in life? They didn't just go and go, hmm, 
I've read a few articles, and this is where I think I should land on it. You know what they did? They wrestled through it. They prayed through it. They brought the church together and talked through it. They looked at church leaders that were part of it and mature Christians, and they continued to hash through it. And then their final authority, they went back to Scripture to see what God said about it. And actually, they go back, and there's elements of Jeremiah 12 and Zechariah 8 and Isaiah 45, but the text they land on here is Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. Verse 15, it says, With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written. After these things, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Now, there's something really interesting and fascinating that's unfolding in this text right here. If you go back to uh, Amos and you look, you see the Hebrew text doesn't say mankind, it says Edom. Edom was a small, uh, uh, minor nation state just southeast of Israel. And the term in Hebrew, Edom, is very similar, rooted in the same word as the Hebrew term Adam. They share the same consonants. And the word Adam means mankind. And what was also interesting is the early Jewish traditions would interpret Edom as a symbol, as an icon for all of mankind. So the symbol that he's given here is that God is going to come and restore the kingdom of David ruling over Edom is a symbol for the kingdom of God ruling over all of humanity. He's saying, guys, this was God's plan from all along. When Paul and Peter and James are talking, it's not that they're determining God's ways. It's that they're discovering them. They're starting to see what God is about and how he's been at work through this nation to expand this good news to the rest of the world. He goes on to say, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble. We don't put an unnecessary barrier, right? To those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they should abstain from contaminated, things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generation has in every city those who preached him since he, read, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Do you ever get to those spots in the Bible where you're like, what, what just happened, right? First of all, he's saying, like, don't follow these laws, and then there's this list of really weird things, these strangled things, blood, things sacrificed to idol and fornication. What, what is going on here? Remember to go back into the first reader, Obviously, for them, there's not a, a lot of explanation around them. They would have instantly associated this to something, kind of like you and I could do in our culture, right? So let me say four things, see if you know what I'm talking about. What if I said, like, balloons, red T-shirts, Fairberry hot dogs, and corn hats? Anybody know what I'm talking about, right? If not, you might not live in Nebraska. I don't know. There's things in our culture that we often instantly connect to something else. Now, for them, they would have heard these four things and instantly connected it to the pagan temples, the Roman temples. These were all things that took place in the temple life around this area of the Gentiles. So instantly, they're starting to see this. They would take as a form of worship these animals and they would strangle them and hold them up to an idol until they died, thinking that the breath was leaving the animal and entering into this idol that they'd carved out, giving it power. 
When they'd kill the animal, they wouldn't drain the blood. There were actually prostitutes that were in the temple, and as a form of worship to the gods, they would go. They would participate in sex with these prostitutes. He's telling them, hey, there's a different way to live in following Jesus. There's a lot of debate on how this would be worked out. Some people go back to Genesis chapter 9 and say this is a larger context of what God's asking. Some people look at the laws in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. They say this is dealing with the laws. And other people start to talk about the fel- table fellowship, like when they'd come around and for unity within the church. And other scholars think it's talking about the gospel growth and gospel reach in the area. And quite frankly, there's a lot of room to continue to dig in and figure it out. But for sure it's this. He's simply saying, hey, as Christians, you don't participate in the same things you used to, right? You don't participate in the worship of other gods. And in fact, you adopt a different ethic, different from your culture sexually. You're, you're going to be a monogamous, male-female, covenantial sexual ethic, not the way you've been living. Now, obviously, when we take any part of Scripture in the gospel We have to put it in the culture that we live. And sometimes there's a lot of things we've got to wrestle with, a lot of nuances. So what's that mean about what I eat? And what about like the the meat that's sacrificed in that temple, but that's in the butcher shop right next door? Can I eat that? And what about about the feasts? Because so much in this time circles around the feasts. Give us a little perspective of that, just eating. Think of it in their time period. Uh, A a historical uh, scholar wrote this. Meat was a relatively expensive and could have only been available on a regular basis by those with, with money to buy. The poor and working class Gentiles would ordinarily only have meat at a public celebration, in particular at a feast in the temple. The decree would have been issued in a social context where the most natural way to read it would be able to see it as a prohibition against attending such feasts and all that they entailed. So it's not merely that I don't participate in the worship of idols, but there's cultural things that I start to see. There's some things I have the freedom to do, but I'm going to give up for the sake of unity in the church and for the spread of the gospel. Remember, there are synagogues all over that continue to read the laws. People, Jewish people are coming to know Jesus and learning the same truths that they're discovering here. How can I help them advance and grow? Yeah, probably I can picture Paul saying, hey, don't, don't, Don't bring ham sandwiches to the potlucks, right? Help them grow and understand this. But also, what about those feasts there? Maybe for a time. It would be good to not go to the feasts as your brothers and sisters are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. Paul is going to continue to speak into this more and more. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, he says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, you're free to do this, and you're free not to do this, but how does it impact the unity of the church? Church, no doubt over the last couple years, there have been a lot of cultural things that we've had to navigate and figure out how do we walk wisely with the freedom we have in Christ to both bring unity in the church and continue to have the gospel spread. It's challenging, right? And it continues to require us to live in community with one another, to seek the Spirit's guidance, and to continue to dig into the Word, see what God says as we move forward. 
They're making those determinations and they're saying, hey, this is what we see is good. Now, this is often way easier to see in other cultures. My brother and his wife have been missionaries in Papua New Guinea for the last 20 years. They were in a tribe where no one outside that tribe knew the language. And they moved in, they started learning the language, started sharing with them scripture and teaching them to read and write and showing them the Bible. And after a while, my wife and I got to go over there. As we were going over, they said, hey, there's a couple things you should do that would help in the culture here. One of the things they told my wife is, hey, you should bring dresses that go from your waist all the way down to your feet. Now, this is hot tropical weather. (laughs) Not the ideal outfit for what we're going to be a part of. In Christ, she has the freedom to wear shorts. Might be a little more practical even. But for the sake of unity and the spread of the gospel, she could submit those rights in order to go forward. Now, what was so interesting is we got over there and we saw, for sure, everyone was wearing that same thing. For modesty reasons, they said. All the ladies are walking around with no top. I couldn't quite figure that one out. Different cultural things, right? So as we start to continue to move forward, every generation, every culture has to decide and figure out what it means for the gospel to take root in their lives and be lived out in the culture that we're living. The, the gospel is never in a vacuum. It exists in real life, in real time, in real people. So they decide that they've figured out the way to move forward. In verse 22, And it seemed good to them, the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch, with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So how did they decide to move forward? Verse 23, And they sent them a letter by them. This is what it says. The apostles and brethren who are elders and brethren in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us to have become of one mind. They've searched it out. They've prayed. They've studied scripture They say, this is what we see the Spirit moving forward. We think this is what's good. This will bring unity. To select men to send you with our loved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from fornication. If you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. If you walk in these ways, it would be wise. As we journey before, together as a united church to continue to move forward with the proclamation of the gospel, this seems like a wise step to move forward with. How'd they respond? Verse 30 goes on to say, And when they were sent... Away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced. If this were a list of additional laws, they would have continued to have been unsettled in their souls. Verse 32, Judas and Silas also, being prophets, themselves encouraged and strengthened the brethren with this lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others the word of the Lord. 
And the drama of the debate had been decided. The drama has died down. There's clarity, at least for this week. As they continue to move forward as a church and figure out how to walk and follow Jesus, there will be other drama that erupts, but we'll get to that in other weeks. But it leads me to that question, again, that we asked. What do I have to do to be right with God? What do I have to do to be accepted by God? Did you see what they clearly understood? You can do absolutely nothing in and of yourself to be accepted by God. There is nothing you can do on your own to be accepted by God. And that truth will either wreck you or it will set you free. It'll either wreck you because in your pride you'll continue to think, I can do it, I don't need it, I will somehow achieve it. Or conversely, it will wreck you in your insecurity by thinking, I still have to do more. There's something more I still have to do. Or it will free you because you realize that you could never do it. But Jesus did it on your behalf and simply by putting your faith and trust in him. You could have the acceptance of a God that loves you. So church, if this is true, I could do nothing to gain my salvation. Why would I continue to try and live out this life with Jesus on my own as well? Why would I continue to beat myself up every time I mess up or to try and gain God's favor somehow in the way I live my Christian life? That is done. Maybe for you this morning, it is time to believe that God fully accepts you. He loves you. You are free to follow him, not to gain his acceptance, but to join in with him and the incredible mission that he is continuing to unfold around the world. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this truth. Thank you for the hope that we find that we will never be good enough on our own. God, that could be a desperate statement. That could be a depressing statement. That could be a hopeless statement. But you have provided a way. Your son, you loved us so much that you sent him to die for us. Thank you that it's in his death and resurrection and in trust and belief in you alone that we grant a relationship and favor with you. Father, help us to live in that relationship in a way that loves you and lives out the gospel to a world that desperately needs this message around us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.